Good evening, everybody. Um, you will be aware that up there there are some cameras. Um, and you will, I'm afraid, find yourself on a university podcast um, as a result of deciding to come this evening. Um, I, I, too, would like to welcome you all most warmly to this inaugural Lady English Lecture, and we're all absolutely delighted that Melissa Benn accepted our invitation to be our first speaker. Melissa is a writer, journalist, and campaigner. Having graduated with a first in history from the LSE, she worked first on the cooperatively run magazine City Limits, and she's now a regular contributor to The Guardian, a columnist for Public Finance magazine, and her journalism has appeared in publications across the political spectrum, from The Times, The Independent, and The New Statesman to Marxism Today. Her books include two novels, Public Lives and One of Us, which was widely praised and shortlisted for the Waterstones New Writer of the Year Award in 2008. Her non-fiction works include Madonna and Child, Towards the New Politics of Motherhood, and several works on education and equality. In 2004, she co-edited Education and Democracy, a collection of essays, followed by A Comprehensive Future, Quality and Equality for All Our Children a pamphlet commissioned by the pressure group Compass and co-written with Fiona Miller. And in 2011, she published School Wars, The Battle for Britain's Education, which has been widely reviewed and provoked much discussion. Melissa is also a regular speaker and broadcaster. She's written and presented several Radio 4 programmes on topics including a series on the history of divorce, a three-part study of forgiveness in personal and public life, and a one-off programme on the historic Gronick strike. There is, of course, a strong emphasis on feminism in her writing. But as the range of her journalism and her campaigning demonstrates, she is far from being a single-issue person. And her concern with gender equality is part of a much broader range of work on equality and social justice. So I cannot think of a more appropriate speaker for our inaugural lecture. And she's going to talk to us this evening on the question, what should we tell our daughters? Equality and feminism in the 21st century. Melissa. Thank you very much for your kind introductions. It's always rather scary when people say their daughters are interested in hearing what you say and you're going to report back. Because we all know how mothers report back to their daughters. So I hope I get a good... A good report. Well, I'm really honoured to be asked to give this inaugural lecture in your name, Judy, and on such an important topic, and one that really is close to my political heart over many decades. Now, thinking about young women's lives, as I've tried to do in my latest book, What Should We Tell Our Daughters?, it's inevitably taken me back to some of the, how would I say it, rawer feminist passions of my youth. I thought I'd share some of them with you. As a fiery teenager, I waged a single-handed campaign against the unequal distribution of housework within my own family, <laughs> which actually was quite successful. In my early 20s, this is just a random example, I was quite an active young woman. In my early 20s, I performed really badly, it has to be said, in street theatre in the Portobello Road, in protested attempts to restrict a woman's right to safe legal abortion. 
A few years later, I co-authored, I'm proud of this, the first pamphlet ever written in this country on sexual harassment at work and was roundly trashed in the Daily Mail for my efforts. And I want you to know I keep that tattered double-page spread saying what was wrong with me and all my works, and I was only 24, to this day, and it's a badge of great honour in my mind. And one of my first paid jobs involved me setting up a newspaper for female prison inmates, an attempt by the organisation I was then working for, Women in Prison, to reach the poorest and most vulnerable women in society, those women, as I shall argue in this lecture, who were too often forgotten not just by society but by feminism itself. So when it comes to feminist activism as well as argument, I can honestly say, if you'll forgive the pun, I have some form. So look, what I want to do this evening is to try and assess, as I do in my book, the new times we find ourselves in, in terms of the long struggle to win equality for women, and to offer a few thoughts, which you would expect from a campaigner, I think, on the way forward in terms of political strategy. For we are living in new times, and they're very interesting ones indeed. If I'd been asked to give this lecture only a couple of years ago, my question might well have been, where has feminism gone? Why did it die? What is post-feminism, my least favourite phrase? And I'm very glad to see that there's a student here who deconstructed post-feminism as part of her study at Oxford. I would have asked, why do young women seem to reject the feminism that shaped my generation so profoundly? But we cannot say that here and now in late 2003. Ever 2013, that shows, my, <laughs> that shows my age. There must be some deep psychological reason for that. Everywhere there is a new political energy and protests bringing up on so many related issues, often shaped and led by young women themselves, many of whom I hope are here today. Much of the fourth wave, as it is called, and I often say I'm never quite sure when the third wave was, given that the second wave was the 1960s and 70s, but much of the fourth wave is digitally based with the new technology's unparalleled ability to capture the immediacy and drama of contemporary sexism and to draw women in through the web. New groups are forming all the time. I've been tracking them while writing my book. So there's 50 Foot Women, which apparently is a mentoring organisation, Firing Up for Feminism and Everyday Sexism, the amazing web-based um, uh, chronicler of sexism in everyday life, and then magazines like The Gender and the Feminist Times. And these complement the long-standing work of the Fawcett Society, Women in Journalism, or the Campaign to End Violence Against Women. But the influence of the new feminism is going way beyond the web. Political boldness is infectious, and that's one of the most wonderful things about it. Last month, I was asked to speak at the annual Labour Women's Conference gathering, which is usually treated as the loyal warm-up to the main business of conference itself. I was amazed to arrive on that drear Saturday lunchtime to arrive in the conference hall in Brighton to be faced with over 1,200 women fizzing with political anger and energy, who greeted their speakers in a somewhat revivalist fashion. It was like being in a church, I have to tell you. And my rather sober speech, I had to sort of pep it up to keep him with the mood. It was apparently the single largest political gathering of women in recent times, according to Harriet Harman, who also spoke and who knows a thing or two about these matters. Now, most many of these campaigns are injecting new life into issues that we thought we had fought and lost. In witty, creative fashion, and I think that's very important, younger women are taking on the distorted, sexualised images of women that appear in everything from page three to computer games, children's toys to lads mags, and of course, pornography. They are saying no to the pressures on them, on us, but particularly on them, to hide, to shrink, or even surgically alter their bodies in order to fit some unreal stereotype. 
They are pointing up the links between the portrayal of women in the media and widespread and continuing harassment and violence against women. And they are decrying the new girliness of childhood that is entrenching depressingly narrow ideas of what it means to be female from such a young age. Now, just on this subject, earlier this week I was exchanging emails with Selina Todd, who spoke, the Vice Principal of this college, over the arrangements of this event. She happened to mention that my father, the Labour politician Tony Benn, had visited her home when she, Selina, was a child, for she comes from a committed Labour home. He seems to have visited most of those in his time. <laughs> and uh, she remembered my father playing with her toy truck. But what immediately struck me when, I, when she told me this was I wasn't interested in his visit, obviously, but was that although it was a lovely coincidence, sorry, Selina, but the fact that you, the fact that you had a toy truck and that you played with it, and I'm being serious, I did wonder, and when I mentioned it to one of my daughters, she said, oh, everybody's got toy trucks, mums, but I don't think she's right. How many little girls today have one of those in their toy box or are encouraged to play with such a thing rather than the, the dreadful sort of princessified Disney toys, and which is clearly a problem because it's, it's another aspect of feminist campaigning. So to, to my mind, there's no doubt that that toy truck set you off in life in the right direction and has led you to the great success you've had since. But to come back to the new feminism, it's not just an argument about distorted cultural presence, it's also a really important argument about absence. Because women are once again looking around and asking, how much political weight do we really have? How much do we really count in contemporary culture if we do not even appear in sufficient numbers on our own currency, in our parliaments, on our major radio and television programmes? And I do follow the arguments about how many women are on Today programme with great interest. And I did find one day, or somebody else noticed it, I think it was July last year, where there was one female correspondent reporting on the Chelsea Flower Show throughout the entire three hours of the programme. Now, of course, they're all shaking themselves up because they know this is wrong, just like the Shadow Cabinet in the cabinet but how women are saying look we're not even marked on our streets our books are not always reviewed or when they are they're treated in a somewhat demeaning or distorted fashion and it's sometimes even the most apparently anon anonine demand can reveal a darkness that now lurks at the heart of our society i find it extraordinary that the most reasonable political request ever made and met that that genius, Jane Austen, you may not agree with that, but most people would agree, should grace a £10 note, drove campaigner Caroline Criado Perez into virtual hiding earlier this year after a flood of rape and death threats on Twitter. Now, I have to admit, journalism is part of my trade. I am a little dubious about the media's recent enthusiastic embrace of some feminist causes and spokeswomen. A perfect example of this, this Sunday past. The Observer ran a double-page spread on all the issues I've identified above. Everyday sexism, our cultural obsession with women's bodies, the failure to take women seriously, written by the actress Natasha McElhone, I think it's pronounced. It was an excellent piece, illustrated not just once, but twice, by a portrait of the beautiful Miss McElhone herself, the first portrait taking up a good third, if not a half, of the front page of The Observer, with further pictures inside of various alluring young women, including a nude picture of the singer Miley Cyrus perched upon her unfortunate wrecking ball. If you don't get that reference, I'm not going into it. <laughs> so, 
Now, of course, those illustrations will draw a lot of people in. I know that. I read the piece in my mind, oh, this same argument that I've had for 30 years is going on in my mind. A lot of people will read this because of these illustrations, because it's an attractive woman. They will read the article and they'll learn from it. But I have to admit to you, I am increasingly irked at the arrogant, absurd and hypocritical suggestion that we best take feminist lessons in the public realm from highly attractive women. I suppose we should at least be grateful that Miss McElhone did not have to fly in from the United States to be taken seriously. Because it was ever thus, if you think back to the acres of space given to our, by our media to American celebrity figures like Gloria Steinem or Naomi Wolf, compared to the treatment of our own British feminist writers and historians, including Sheila Robotham, a graduate of St Hilda's, as it happens, whose work is so much more complex and subtle and concerned with social class and wider inequalities. Sadly, there are numerous other examples of, med of media hijacking and hypocrisy over feminist issues. Take tabloid outrage over pornography versus the continuing insults of bare breasts on page three. Or what about the publicity granted Femen, that extremely odd direct action group, which sounds like a name that you give to a painkiller or some sort of female aid, that, that, whose members are chosen by the group's male organiser for their beauty and who protest topless, often in Muslim countries, in order to draw attention to the exploitation of women's bodies. Don't know what they're about. I'm sure we will discover that there's something very strange about them. But what a gift to any unreconstructed newsroom or newsman, a chance to cover feminist protest and show yet more female breasts. Wonderful. So for all this, the revival of feminist anger, albeit largely in the cultural realm, is making us look long and hard at our society again. And I think it shows us that while we have made the most extraordinary strides in the last century, after all, 95 years ago, none of the women in this room would have been able to vote. We have not reached the egalitarian nirvana that some seem to think we have. We have become distracted, I believe, by the post-Thatcherite story of that top 20 or 30% of women, women who are at colleges and universities like these, who are making it in the educational survival of the fittest, and I will come back to this, as well as the impressive few, and it is few, who go on to make it to the top of their own overwhelmingly male professions, be it banking or architecture, politics or industry. I could probably name single-handedly who those few women are at the top of those particular areas. It is not surprising the usually representatives from this group, who often pop on our, up on our television screens, as in fact they did yesterday in a particularly poor Newsnight discussion on all these issues, telling us that the battles are won, or indeed that being a woman can be a positive advantage in the modern world. But suppose we look at this group in a different way for a moment, in fact as a decoy generation in the making, as the Institute for Public Policy and research calls them, distracting us from and obscuring the falling living standards of the majority and the pauperisation of a significant minority of women. For gender inequality still clearly exists, albeit in ever-shifting forms, from the continued gendering of subject choice at school to unequal domestic arrangements, including, I would argue, the differing demands made of our sons and daughters, to the persistence of unequal pay, to the scandal of men and women's differing pension entitlements. Taken together, and I think it is that taking together that has become so important, it is clear that to be female in this society is still to be at a distinct material disadvantage. At the same time, in my view, we suffer from a criminal lack of collective curiosity about the economic realities of most people's lives, but particularly women's. We hear little in our media of the thousands of women who are losing their jobs, particularly in the public sector, or those seeing their benefits cut by a government that shows an inhuman disregard at times for the suffering these policies are causing. 
Certainly, while I was researching my book, three facts shocked me and have stayed with me in the years since. First, the rapidly growing gap in wages between graduate and unskilled women, a far greater gap than that that exists between male graduates and unskilled men. Two, the miserably low wages of so many women over 50, half of whom work part-time and of whom over half of those earn less than 10,000 a year. And in general, in fact this makes it four facts, excuse my numbering, I'm quite my numeracy, in general women in their 50s earn less than women in their 30s. And finally, the striking difference between the median gross weekly pay of male single parents, currently £345 a week, compared to women, which is 195 Such a significant statistic. So what exactly should we tell our daughters? Apart from the imperative of staying thin at all times and pleasing the attractive, it would help if they did not get poor or old, and I think that should cover it. <laughs> but in case we want to argue that this is simply an argument about growing inequality, and we can certainly make that, and that gender is not relevant to that any longer, I think it's important to point out that even successful women don't escape the problems of the woman question, as it used to be called. Having children has a huge effect even now on female earnings and career pro progress. Over the course of a lifetime, it was calculated only last year, women executives earn nearly half a million pounds less than their male equivalents. Add to this the growing evidence of new and renewed discrimination against women who take maternity leave and the way that many employers are now rolling back progressive employment practices. Last week I took part in a cross-generational debate with Stella Creasy, MP, shadow minister and feminist campaigner. I actually thought she was in her late 20s because she's very, well, looks very young. In fact, she's in her mid to late 30s. She said a number of interesting things, including the fact that she felt now her generation in their mid 30s had dropped the ball on feminist campaigning. And she felt they had been shocked awake by the renewal of feminist anger. But her most interesting comment, to my view, made almost in passing, was about how many of her peers are terrified at the prospect of taking time out and having children and terrified at the prospect in career terms. And I know, putting that fact together with what I learned from the interviews for my book, how many women are terrified at the prospect of not having children. Now, somebody said to me today, it was ever thus. It may have been ever thus, but is it progress? I think not. This contrast, then, between widespread assumptions of female achievement, even superiority, coupled with very real but hidden blocks to fulfilment and success, explains a kind of anticipatory but perceptive loss of confidence among so many young women and a sense of demoralisation and even shame among older women about the way their lives have panned out. Perhaps even more dangerously, I, we have stopped talking publicly and collectively about these material problems. Listen to media or public discussions and it is often as if to talk of gender inequality is to invoke an old, unrecoverable language, rather like socialism or even one-nation social democracy in an age of globalisation, a language that we are now urged to abandon in the paradoxical face of progress on the one hand plus intractable, unsolved problems on the other and, as is always the case with women, the claims of nature itself. So what interests me at this point, 2013, not 2003, is how we can revive and update our discussion of the reality of gender inequality, just as the fourth waivers are doing, but perhaps in broader terms. 
I think we have to be honest with ourselves. It's not easy to do in these privatised, deregulated, digitised times, when trade unionism itself is increasingly treated as a form of anti-democratic activity, or in a world in which the revolutionary views of comedian Russell Brand, with his bizarre sexual politics, are treated with a reverence once granted more properly in my, properly in my view to a figure like Ralph Miliband. Now, my younger daughter, who's not here today, tells me that I don't understand that Russell Brand, for all his eccentricities, is talking for a younger generation totally disillusioned with politics. She may be right, but I am right to be irritated that he is seen as a spokesman on many things. And the question I ask is, in this world where those views and those values, that wacky approach, command such widespread popular attention, we have to ask what hope is there for sober, inch-by-inch -inch campaigns on the vital but daily questions of stagnating female pay or the burdens of care? I was called in recently as part of a briefing for a senior political figure on women in the economy, and I was struck then by the pressure on even the best of our current leaders to always go with the fresh, the symbolic issue, rather than the old, intractable problem, which is one reason why the figure of Jane Austen on banknotes, rather than the real money that real women do or don't earn, has so much traction. Now, everywhere, I think young women are being encouraged to think of their lives and act on their lives in individual terms. Go to Amazon, and the top-selling feminist book is actually a form of celebrity memoir. Candid, hilarious, inspiring, possibly, but essentially unpolitical. Meanwhile, corporate feminist den mothers like Google's Sheryl Sandberg last year, or earlier this year, urged women as a way of dealing with all these problems I'm talking about, to lean in, or don't leave before you leave, meaning don't give up on getting promotion because you're, you're thinking, will I be able to have a family, and make your partner a real partner, all very sensible prescriptions. But making, putting the onus on women themselves to make all the change. Now, oddly, I think that women's relative lack of power is what makes a thrill to the language of self-improvement. Rather like dieting, it permits the illusion of self-control. And in reality, it's a depressing form of political disengagement, for it confirms our belief that we need not formulate or make demands of others or of institutions, but only of ourselves. And thus, a kind of self-reinforcing circle is set up. We demand little because we get little. We get even less because we do not think to demand more. Interestingly, however, the language of individual achievement works best early on in a young woman's life in the structured environment of school, <coughs> and particularly within our increasingly tick-box educational culture, where girls ahead at most points in the educational landscape, from primary onwards, are good at working out what is required of them and mastering the demands made on them. But that very same efficiency and a kind of obedience does not tell in their favour out in the fast-paced world of 21st century capitalism. That may be to their credit. Indeed, some now believe that success at school makes girls fearful of the risk-taking that is essential to achievement and promotion at work. 
So much so that the Girls' Day School Trust, a body of fee-charging schools, are now urging some of their constituent schools. I was in Oxford the other... Well, I'm in Oxford now, but I was in another meeting. I was for last week, and there was someone from Oxford High, where they are running experiments in encouraging girls to risk failure. The parents are not that happy about their children being part of that cohort, <laughs> I can tell you. And actually, the girls didn't look that happy either. And uh, they're, in fact, encouraging them to become more creatively disruptive. Now, just imagine it. I have to step out here now, and as a long-time advocate of state education, a passionate believer all our children should be educated together, and a passionate critic of the way that the government is going about making change. Imagine if our state schools tried the same thing. A week of failure and creative disruption at your local comprehensive or academy. I think I might try it, actually. I think that would be very good. I might do that in the run-up to the election. The public and political response doesn't bear thinking about. But the point that the Girls' Day School Trust makes is an important one. My point is, for all the girls on top stories and A-star obsession, we are still shortchanging our girls at school. For instance, I was very struck by the findings of a 2011 Ofsted report which showed that girls continue to and are encouraged or not discouraged to select female-friendly subjects such as dance, art, textile, sociology, health and social care, biology, English or psychology, and that only a tiny percentage take up non-stereotypical work placements or go on to study maths or physics or other sciences, despite all the evidence on the importance of these subjects for future success. And there's a strong class dimension to this, as the Equality and Human Rights Commission, of which we do not hear enough from in this current political landscape, they found when they did a major study of girls from 14 to 18, According to the EHRC's head, Trevor Phillips, this is what he said, his words are worth quoting. The majority of young women, this is in Britain today, who come from working class backgrounds, believe they will fail. They believe the best they can do is to be a hairdresser or work in one of the three C's, catering, childcare or cleaning. These are proper careers, says Trevor Phillips, and I don't want to do them down. The problem is we have a society where young girls who aren't from well-off professional families can't see themselves as successful in anything but a limited range of jobs. Within education and career services, the expectation for these girls are still pretty low. That is quite an indictment of our school system. One final thought on the education issue. I ended research and writing of my book convinced that just about the greatest gift we can give all our daughters, and not just the academic ones, is to teach them to think out loud. It's interesting, isn't it, actually, how those two single words, girls, girls and loud, even now don't sound quite right when bracketed together, unless there is a group called Girls Out Loud. They're a dreadful group. But girls and loud, no. I think we need to encourage girls, and more than encourage, we need to fight put in place systems and structures that encourage girls who can so easily lose their intellectual and emotional confidence in adolescence to speak more and to speak up. The gift of the gab is not, in my view, best seen as a gift at all, one just given to the Boris Johnsons of this world. Learning to reflect on, one what, is, on what one is learning, hearing, reading, in school or in life, is a habit. It's a form of mental exercise, just like running or swimming, that needs encouragement and frequent practice. And I was very interested when talking to Judy earlier on, asking, we were talking about, do you get nervous before speaking? How often do you do it? That kind of conversation. And Judy said that in one school that you were involved in, 
Girls were taught when they were quite young, as teenagers, to come up on a stage and one says one sentence and the other says the other sentence. So all they have to do is come up with a friend and each speak, but it gets you used to the practice of speaking out loud. And in fact, Gloria Steinem, the US feminist, who is actually quite a, quite a good thing in my view, um, she was so frightened of public, public speaking that for the first eight years of her political career, she never spoke without somebody else with her. She always came on stage and the two of them spoke together. I'm not, I don't mean when I'm saying we should encourage girls to speak. I'm not only talking about public speaking. I'm talking about all kinds of speaking in small groups and, and so on. But that is the kind of individualism that we need to encourage as part of a longer-term aim of increasing and balancing out the voices that get heard in our public realm, in the public realm, because it is too narrow at present. So again, when it comes to women and work, briefly, I think we again need to have a reality check before we formulate new demands for this age. I think it's very important that we do not swallow wholesale those easy newspaper headlines about young women streaking ahead in pay in their 20s, because I don't think they're they're entirely accurate, but look at the sober figures that tell a different story. According to FutureTrack, which is the most detailed and impressive study undertaken of the experience of contemporary university students, looking at their time at university and their trajectories afterwards, done by Warwick University, the pay gap between young men and young women starts from graduation onwards. Male graduates with similar qualifications, experience and in similar jobs earn more than females from the outset of their career and it's a disparity that has not shifted for a decade. The Global Gender Report published only last week put Britain low down in the international league table that shows just how bad we are at valuing, sustaining and promoting women at work. So we don't need to urge young women to lean in and ask more of themselves. We need to ask them to look outwards get the facts and demand change. So, in case this is sounding a bit bleak, I am in fact an eternal optimist. I'm very, very cheerful and well-intentioned. The Guardian told me so this weekend. So I, see, um, so I see hopeful signs of change and hope on the horizon. There is, for instance, and this interests me hugely, a sort of tremulous, um, tremulous emergence of a new radicalism from within corporate feminism in the USA of all places. Top women who have played the game and who are fed up of what is being asked of them, not asked of them, but not of society or their male peers. Now, yes, this language can have a defeatist edge, a tinge of you can't have it all girls, so don't even try. That's always lurked around this debate. But at the same time, some new energy and proposals are coming out that, interesting to me, sound remarkably like the best of second wave socialist feminism. I'm particularly thinking, and I cover it in my book, of the writing of Anne-Marie Slaughter, who was a senior policy advisor in the US State Department and an academic at Princeton, who had to give up her government job after one of her sons got into difficulty during adolescence. To her credit, Slaughter started thinking all over again about the structure of work under capitalism in America, that applies here, the demands of success, and how inhospitable it all is to true human flourishing. And in a trenchant piece in the US magazine The Atlantic, she asks at one point, and makes a simple point, why won't we, don't we match work schedules with school schedules? And it sounds like a simple demand, but it is a simple demand, 
But when you read other works, for instance, a book called The XX Factor by Alison Wolfe, The Economist, which looks at the top 20 and 30% of women, and she argues that you can't talk about feminism anymore because there is this massive gap between women of different classes and professions. In that book, Alison Wolfe says, as if in passing, it is pointless asking employers in any way to shape work life to fit in, she says, with the demands of mothers bringing up children. I don't think it is pointless. I think it's one of the most important struggles that are that is ahead of us, it's not behind us. And so Slaughter's question and her demand hits home for me and crystallises one of the key demands of a new political and employment settlement I think we urgently need for the 21st century, our daughters urgently need it, if we are ever to give them the chance of an equal life and to reverse the growing inequality in our society. Now, paradoxically, I think austerity and recession could help us renew some earlier calls for a different way of organising work and home. Instead of extending the 24-7 demands and rewards of top jobs to a few high-achieving women, I think we should be urging a greater balance of public and private life for all citizens. The flip side of that new settlement must surely be more domestic democracy. Incidentally, I'm going to take a patent out on this term because I made it up, and I notice people are using it more and more. That's probably the way I'll make money. It's like, well, probably that's my pension, actually. Of course, I didn't coin the idea because it's one of feminism's best that we need a fairer sharing of the work of the home if women are ever to stop running themselves ragged, becoming exploited and progressively impoverished, balancing care and paid work over decades. Finally, we have to keep asserting the importance of the role of the state. In contemporary political discourse, it is profoundly depressing. The state is a dirty word. One sees this in education where schools are being privatised and I'm sure that... Um, if the Conservatives win the next election, we will see for-profit schooling. But in contemporary political discourse, the state has come to mean and stand in for unhealthy dependents, lazy people not making their own way. But why? Why can't we think of it in a completely different way? Of, of taxpayers, of the collective, giving support at crucial moments over a lifetime and helping create useful, active citizens. No one puts this argument better than the writer Zadie Smith, and I quote her. Some people, and this is so true in the society we live in now, owe everything they have to the bank accounts of their parents. I owe the state. Put simply, the state educated me, it fixed my leg when it was broken, it gave me a grant that enabled me to go to university. Those were the big things, but there were also plenty of little ones, my subsidised sports centre and my doctor's office my school music lessons, paid for with pennies, my university fees, my NHS glasses, age nine, my NHS baby, age 33, and my local library. To steal another writer's title, England made me. No one could put it better. So let me end by saying a few things. It's time, it seems to me, to renew the feminist conversation as the fourth wave are doing, but in more mutual and collective terms. And I think to do this, we need to do a number of things. Firstly, to keep our eyes, I hope I've made clear, on the material as much as the cultural in terms of assessing and meeting most women's real needs. Secondly, to harness, harness digital campaigns to the work of local, well, to the political world, particularly local and national government. I think we can learn a huge amount from the speed and creativity of modern digital-based activism. But the risk, it seems to me, is that while it intrigues and it challenges, 
Like a silent film, it will endlessly flicker on the wall of our minds, visually powerful and powerful in other ways, but somehow dreamlike and ultimately ineffective. Over the past year, again for the writing of my book, I've talked to some inspiring women who recognise the importance of collective political action out in the world in terms of making real change, and they have gone back to basics. They are standing for local government, because they see that very few women do and campaigning to retain, for example, a group in Bristol, vital services for women who have suffered domestic violence, and we've made no progress in terms of the numbers of women who are killed every week in England and Wales. The same figure, two women killed every week, hasn't changed for 10 or 20 years. They're working to help women burdened with care at all points in their lives and fighting for a living wage. We think of these if we think these issues, feminist issues, are all about male attitudes or sexualisation, we need to think again. One small example, 50,000 streetlights have been turned off since cuts to local government funding as part of austerity measures. Women's refuges are being closed down. Sex education is a virtually non-existent resource in most of our schools, Ofsted said so. Privatisation of care services is cutting the wages of care workers and reducing the quality of elder care quite dramatically. In short, public investment promotes equality. Public participation promotes the chance of public investment that promotes equality. So we need to keep making that case. Thirdly, it is vital that we press for more women in public life and representative politics in particular. And I think the cynicism about politics, I say this coming from a political family who don't claim great expenses and who work very hard. There's too much cynicism about, about political life and I think it works against women because we need more women of all ages and all backgrounds to be in local government, to be in national politics. And particularly, I think we need older women. As the campaigner Fiona Miller put it when I asked her, and I put it in my book, I have more to offer politics at 55 than I did when I was 35, and certainly than when she was 25. So I think we must argue for mechanisms that will get more women aboard, including women-only shortlists and quotas. I'm 56. I don't have the time to watch or wait for women to naturally filter through to power, because they may not, and I'll be dead when they do. So I'd like to see some faster means of doing that. Now, again, even though I come from a political background, I didn't realise till I started interviewing for this book and looking at how politics looks to younger women how much the political process filters out all but the most confident or narcissistic or hard-nosed. You take your pick, I'm not saying a word. <laughs> Fourthly, we need to harness our long-term visions of change, that new settlement and balance that I talked about, to immediate political demands, particularly with an election coming up in 2015 and politicians so keenly aware and vulnerable to these arguments in a good way, judging from the recent reshuffle both of the cabinet and the shadow cabinet, that politicians know that they need women in their teams and their policies, but I don't think they quite know what policies they need to have. And women in, and also women in politics need encouragement. They need to know that there are all of many of us out here asking for particular things and supporting them in trying to, to bring them through. So among the political demands we should be making, and this is a very limited 
uh, this, but important, I think, to say we do need much more effective action to promote the safety of women and girls. We need greater pay transparency at all levels, and the increasing privatisation of our workforce is going against that, performance-related pay, individual contracts. Because pay transparency outlaws hidden sex discrimination. The living wage, the most inspirational campaign there has been over the last decade, and so important for those, all those so-called women's jobs, particularly care work, childcare or elder care. State subsidy for high-quality, flexible childcare and elder care to ease women's burdens, rapidly increasing, and I did a bit of detective work for my book, and this would make a huge ch change. Rapidly increasing the supply of really high-quality, high-status, well-paid part-time jobs to ease the middle years, I was going to say, of women's work lives, but of a committed parent's work life. And there's a very interesting website and campaign called Time Wise Jobs, and they find those high-quality jobs, and they go to employers and get them provided. And they have 165 of them on their website the last time I looked, and they have 40,000 women and men looking for that kind of work. Surely we can do something about that. And finally, reform of the scandalous pension system to recognise the work that women put into the economy, into public life, through raising children as well as through being in paid work. And my final point, which is why I wrote my book and is what I, what I wanted to move towards, is we have to find new ways to create alliances across both the sexes but the generations. Men are finding a new place in the new feminism. That only makes sense to me as they too lose out from the crass sexualisation of culture and they too will benefit from a more balanced approach to work and life. But what particularly interests me is a new meeting of women of different generations, which I welcome on so many levels. Feminism has traditionally been represented as the voice of the young, their voices fading as they age and as women become realistic about life's challenges. At the same time, entrenched sexist attitudes suggest that younger women must always reject their mothers, their political maternal elders, and that mothers somehow resent their daughters in turn. What rubbish. <laughs> it's, it's always not been true, it's always been much more complex, but I think economic and political developments, particularly the massive influx of women um, of my generation into responsible um, and professional life renders that template completely out of date. At Labour Women's Conference, which I mentioned at the beginning, Harriet Harman noted, I thought quite perceptively, that there is now a generation of older women from their late 40s onwards who have had a great deal of public and life experience and still have much political life in them, yet yeah, people like Helena Kennedy who's sitting over there. Um, there are numerous examples of older, experienced women, like Caroline Lucas, who's doing a lot on feminism now, Harman herself, journalists like Jackie Ashley and Miriam O'Reilly, who was sacked by the BBC for the crime of being 51. Uh, sorry, sacked, I'll be sued. She was um, asked, she was, her work was cut back. These women are making common cause with younger women on a range of issues. But certainly, and here I will end, on a more human daily level, when I look at my daughters, one of whom is here tonight, and their generation, I have nothing but faith. Faith in their strength of character, their essential human decency, their ability to think out all these problems from their own perspective, which they will have to do, but to see others too, their openness to learning from the lessons of history, and their determination to win change. So together with them, I hope we can work together 
to make good on feminism's deeper promises into the 21st century and beyond. Thank you very much. so much Melissa for a really inspiring informative and ambitious lecture um, which um, I greatly enjoyed and I'm sure others did too and I had a train set as well as a truck so. <laughs> um, it reminded me very much what you were saying um, of an encounter that I had in 2003 the year that you got mixed up in where I was um, working at another university and um, was uh, giving a commentary on um, a fellow academic's uh, paper and afterwards a professor of economic history came over to me and paid me what he thought was a great compliment. He said, that was very manly. <laughs> <laughs> and that, that was only 10 years ago. I have to say that that's not something that I think I would ever have been told um, at my large co-educational comprehensive school where the first ever history project that we were given, boys as well as girls, was to go out and interview the oldest woman that we knew about her life and then to construct a social history around that. Um, and I'm glad to say it's not something that I would ever expect to be told here at St Hilda's where we're very proud that the majority of our fellowship remains women, um, many of whom have caring responsibilities. We therefore try in all kinds of flexible ways to fit those responsibilities into people's lives and to fit work around them. And surprise, surprise, Far from undermining productivity, community and intellectual debate, that approach only seems to foster all three of those. Like Melissa, I've got a lot of faith in the up-and-coming generation, um, and I was very much reminded when you were talking about daughters of um, an encounter that I had in our Freshers' Week here at the beginning of this year, um, when, as a historian, um, I met with our new first years and our incoming second and third years, um, and came across them in their first encounter with each other at the beginning of the new academic year when one might expect them to be simply exchanging stories of what they'd done over the summer, um, having a vociferous debate about intersectionality and how we can overcome gender, race and class inequalities. They all had very different views, but what was very impressive, I thought, was that they all took as a given the idea that we do have to challenge those inequalities. And they all realised at the age of 18, 19 or 20 that that is going to be a mammoth task. And as Melissa's conclusion I think reminds us, it's too serious a task to be left in the hands of one single generation. We all have to work together to achieve that. And I'm delighted that you've given us a clarion call um, to do that here at our very first Lady English Lecture as we think as a community about how we can help in that as we go forward.